Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Mabel Romero, Associate Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And today I'm joined by Dr. David Lay, who's a world-renowned clinical psychologist known for bringing scientifically accurate and clinically sound information discussions about modern sexuality. He also serves on the board of the Sexual Health Alliance as an expert advisor and is an internationally recognized expert on issues related to sexuality, pornography, and mental health. So today I was ostensibly going to have him on just to talk about his recent publication back from 2015 in Current Sexual Health Reports um, that he co-authored with Julie Bravko and Rory Reed um, entitled Forensic Applications of Sex Addiction in U.S. Legal Proceedings. Um, but th- this paper has become suddenly incredibly topical um, given that yesterday Robert Aaron Long um, in Atlanta walked into three different spas and killed eight people. Um, so we do know that six of the people who've been killed um, are Asian women, which has led to understandable conclusions and questions with regard to motive, um, racial motivation. And a number of people have recently expressed some some shock at um, a recent um, press conference that was held by Cherokee County Sheriff Frank Reynolds, um, suggesting that Long might have been a patron of the spas and was struggling with a sex addiction, quote unquote, that motivated um, you know, this rash of shootings and killings. And he seemed to chalk it up to the sex, sex addiction, saying that perhaps Long was having a bad day. Dr. Lay, could you tell us a little bit more about um, this sort of colloquial understanding as to what sex addiction means and sort of the confusion as to, you know, the way that people use it, you know, in sort of this sort of immediate um, law enforcement sort of context? Right, right. Um, so, uh, you know, a little bit of history, I think, is important because um, sex addiction, as, as you said, it's a colloquial term. This is, uh, you know, this is not a clinical or medical term. It's important to know that sex addiction is not a diagnosable disorder. It's not in the, uh, the diagnostic manual for the American Psychiatric Association of Sexual and Mental Health Disorders. Um, it is it is a basically kind of an extension of the idea of drug and alcohol addiction that was introduced in the early 1980s where people said you know sex is kind of like drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. and sometimes we when we are horny when we're turned on when we want sex we do things that we shouldn't do or we can't control ourselves the same way we have trouble with self-control when we're drunk or high. And so back in the 1980s, they they came up with the idea of using 12-step uh, drug and alcohol, uh, you know, uh, model for social support. 12, I, I like to be clear, 12-step um, approaches are not treatment. They are social support. Um, and that's an important distinction. Um, the uh, so they applied the 12 step model to sexuality with sex and love addiction and uh it kind of helped a certain group of people because it's important to remember that during the 1980s um our country and our our world our society was really struggling with a sexual crisis around HIV and AIDS and at the time there was tremendous fear of our sexual desires. Um, at the same time, our country went from the free love movement of the 1970s into you know, the Reagan era, where we embraced uh, a pretty strict level of sexual conservatism. 
And so all of a sudden, all of the people who were struggling with desire for uh, non-heterosexual sex, desire for sex outside a monogamous relationship, desire for casual or anonymous kind of sex, they were terrified that those desires could lead to them getting AIDS and dying. And the idea that sex is an addiction um, and the 12-step kind of model offered people some maybe hope, right, that they could control their sexual desires. However, you know, 40 years later, here we are, and what we've, what we now know is that it turns out that, you know, the belief that you're a sex addict or the belief that you are addicted to pornography is predicted not by how much sex you have or how much porn you watch, but it is predicted primarily by your religious and moral conflict with your sexual mm -hmm. desires. And what we have is, you know, unfortunately, millions of people who grew up in, you know, religious conservative households where they were taught, you know, there's a right kind of sex. And if you want anything other than that, you know, you're sinful, you're unhealthy, you're potentially addicted. And so they hate themselves for having these desires. And they try to make those desires go away. They try to suppress them. And don't think of a naked white elephant right now, whatever you do. And if you do think of a naked white elephant, because of course you can't stop thinking about that as I say it, now you're a dirty, rotten pervert and you should hate yourself. And so the more you try to make that thought go away, the more you try to make thoughts of sex go away, the more you hate yourself for having those thoughts, the stronger the thoughts become. What we, what we now know is that, you know, sex addiction treatment actually does not work. Um, there is building evidence that it very well make, may make things worse. There is tremendous evidence that, you know, people who struggle with their sexual desires um, are struggling with those desires for other reasons. Either it's because of a moral conflict, you know, they grew up in a heterosexual family and maybe they have same-sex desires and they wish they didn't. Um, or maybe they're in a, in a marriage or a relationship with somebody who wants sex much less than they do. And they feel like, you know, their sexual desires, you know, are so powerful and they try to control them so that they can fit within the marriage and the relationship agreement they have. And again, the more you try to make those thoughts or feelings go away, the stronger they get. Unfortunately, unfortunately, what we are clear about right now is that the people who are struggling with these sexuality with these sexual desires it doesn't have a lot to do with the sex it has everything to do with their context with their moral history oftentimes with their emotional functioning with their anxiety issues etc and um you know i i started writing about this um that you know i, I published a book called the myth of sex addiction back in 2012 because I, I confronted this as a clinician. I'm a psychologist and a, and a sex therapist. And, and I, I was seeing lots of, lots of people who were saying, you know, this is about sex. But when I talked to them, I found out it was about a lot of other issues. And, and so I, I published the book to really kind of challenge it and take this on. And then uh, the sex addiction industry, you know, really came after me. I mean, talk about, you know, legal, legal issues. I mean, they have 
they they have threatened representatives of the various sex addiction industry. They have threatened to sue me on probably as many as fifteen or twenty times to prevent me simply from criticizing them. Um, David Duchovny threatened to sue me um, uh, because the the press you know kept talking about him being a sex addict when allegedly when the when when newspapers covered my book um, and. And, and, and the, the sex addiction folks, they would say to me, look, David, you know, we're not, we're not trying to help people avoid responsibility for their behavior. Because that, that's one of the things that is pretty clear here is that people use the claim of se- I'm a sex addict as, a, as, a, as an escape. Um, Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy, before he went to the, 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 the electric chair, he told uh, James Dobson, that the reason he committed these crimes was because he had developed a porn addiction because he had seen Playboy when he was a teenager. And every, the thing, you and I laugh, but the thing is, evangelical Christians tell that story constantly to make people afraid of pornography with the idea that if you let your son look at pornography, he'll turn into a serial killer. Well, let's be clear. Ted Bundy was a lying psychopath who told a minister what he wanted to hear. I, uh, following up on that, you know, I've, I've continued to be a scholar of the sex addiction industry. And so I, so I started, I published a paper, the, the one you referenced, um, um, uh, uh, published in Current Sexual Health Reports back in 2015. We published a paper where we looked at legal cases across the spectrum where claims of sex addiction were being used. And we found numerous cases, uh, including like Ariel Castro, the D- Detroit you know, man who kidnapped and raped women um, for years. Before he died in prison, he had claimed he was a porn addict and, and that, that was why he had done these behaviors. You know, some of these felt somewhat um, familiar to me in a way, given that I was once a prosecutor. I've also practiced in family law. And it was always really mystifying that, you know, people would bring up these claims of sex addiction when I knew. And I figured that most other people would know that it's not even a it's not an official diagnosis, correct? It's not in like the DSM-5. At one point, there was some discussion about looking at that, right? Um, but it just didn't happen. Could you tell us why? Yeah, um, I call it the the hokey pokey. It's in, it's out, mm-hmm. it's in, it's out. And um, uh, as of 2015, the American Psychiatric Association explicitly excluded sex addiction and or um, a concept called hypersexual disorder because, number one, the science just wasn't there to support it. And number two, there was tremendous risk of pathologizing people with normative sexuality. Um, you know, for a long time, sex, sex addiction therapists have claimed that if you on average have an orgasm every day um, over a three-month period, then, you're, then that qualifies you as a sex addict. And then sex therapists like me and researchers started popping up and saying, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of people that are very, very healthy that have an orgasm a day. And, you know, frankly, I know multi-orgasmic women who can blow their entire monthly average in one night, right? So how, how are you going to deal with that? And and so, so the, ultimately, the APA excluded it as not a real diagnosis. However, the problem is, Maybell, is that 
most therapists, most lawyers, most judges, most people in our country get really poor, incredibly abysmally poor sex education, right? So the only, you know, the, the definition of a sex addict or a nymphomaniac is anybody who has more sex than you, right? Exactly. It's all this sort of normative call, right, that you're making. That's right. It, it's all subjective. If you're having more sex than me, then there must be something wrong with you, not me. Um, and, and, and sadly, I have, you know, and I documented in that paper, there are actually numerous cases of judges ordering people into sex addiction treatment without recognizing that, number one, sex addiction treatment is not real, and number two, sex, uh, sex addiction treatment doesn't help. Like here in New Mexico, um, there was a case a few years ago. I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, there was a case uh, in Hobbs of an OBGYN who was actually the president-elect of the New Mexico Medical Society. And then he got caught having sex with one patient while another one of his female patients was in the hospital delivering a baby that he was supposed to be there to catch, right? And he claimed sex addiction uh, to protect his license. And the board went along with it and ordered him to sex addiction treatment in California. And the guy got to keep his license. They never dealt with issues of, for instance, you know, narcissism perhaps that might play a role. They never dealt with the significant issues of alcohol use that were apparently part of this case. Instead, they they just said sex. And I call this sexual shiny object syndrome. And we get distracted by the sex and we think the sex is the problem as opposed to the person. Well, it seems like something that I think generally we imbued in an American culture, right? Um, seem to be a lot more comfortable blaming stuff like this on sex rather than, oh, perhaps this person is dealing with, you know, some actual substance abuse problems that, you know, maybe they should get some help for. Perhaps there is, like you said, a narcissism issue or some other, you know, underlying issue. Why, why do you think that sort of sexual, like shiny object um, sort of phenomena is so easy to fall into? Uh, because we are afraid of sex, because we don't understand sex, because we don't, we don't have much normative dialogue around what healthy sex looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I point out often is that, particularly with men, we only talk about male sexuality when it becomes a problem. Um... For instance, you know, we know far more about the sexuality of Donald Trump than we know about the sexuality of, of, of Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to bet you that Barack Obama is probably a much better lover <laughs> than Donald Trump ever was, right? But instead, we hear about, you know, Donald Trump grab him by the, grab him by the parts because he can mm -hmm. And, and so we are programmed by our society and by our media to take a sensationalist, fear-based approach to sex. So the sensationalist, fear-based approach to sex, I think, could lead to some really dire consequences, though, for, you know, people like sex workers or perhaps, you know, people who might be sex work adjacent and everything. Is that something that you're concerned about? Absolutely. I mean, I... 
the so last night uh, so, you know today is what, what's today Wednesday March seventeenth Happy St Patty's Day mm-hmm. and last night you know we found out in Atlanta about these killings um, as you identified and, and the alleged perpetrator um, arrested after uh, after executing these these alleged sex workers and then and last night you know I recognized this pattern mm-hmm. and 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 I posted on Twitter that I was making a formal prediction that we would find out that this alleged perpetrator, had a history of sexual self-hatred and association with the sex addiction uh, treatment kind of model. And not even 12 hours later, we found out that yes, indeed, he identifies as a sex addict and that the the next target he was on his way to when he got arrested was some kind of pornography related establishment. And the uh, as they as they did the press conference this morning, they identified that he executed these sex workers because it was the only way he could think of to control or remove the temptation that he felt. And it's, it's tragic. And what it is, it's a reflection of the degree to which we separate sex from the person. Mm -hmm. It is that 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 sexy shiny object thing, but it's also about externalization because this guy, identifying as a sex addict, thought that he would be safer by killing these people who tempted his sexual desires, as opposed to learning how to understand and manage his own sexual feelings. I. I've been doing this treatment for a long time. I work with these folks and I got to tell you that when I educate them about what normative sexuality looks like, when I help them understand that having these sexual desires that they are so afraid of is actually normal, when I help them to have a sense of peace and self-acceptance with their own sexuality, it is no longer so scary. It doesn't feel like it's something that they have to be violent and aggressive and and attack and fight. But that's what the model of sex addiction treatment really is, particularly the online porn addiction folks. And you know the there is a there is an incredibly disturbing overlap um, of the online porn addiction, no fap, your brain on porn, reboot kind of people. These are these online groups. The porn that, is the new drug folks and everything. Yeah, absolutely. They are they are all these folks who say that, you know, watching porn and masturbating, because uh, most, uh, when we talk about porn use, we're actually talking about masturbation. 95% of porn use is accompanied by masturbation, mm-hmm. but we don't talk about it because masturbation isn't, isn't polite to talk exactly. about. Exactly. Um, most of these online folks that are, you know, attacking pornography, they invoke incredibly antiquated and rigid ideas around masculinity, uh, that a man who masturbates is less of a man, uh, than a man who, who, who doesn't, uh, they are highly anti-Semitic. There are incredible 
anti-Jewish kind of uh, memes and uh, dynamics that they bring up where they blame, uh, they blame Jews for the porn industry. Uh, they claim that the, or they argue that the porn industry should be shut down. And that's basically the only way they can stop themselves from masturbating, mm -hmm. um, which is sad if it wasn't frightening as hell. Um, and then they are incredibly misogynistic. Um, it is, it, it is, it is frightening the degree to which they express extraordinary levels of anger and violence towards women for looking sexy and provoking sexual thoughts in them. So what intersection do you think that this might also have potentially with race then? Um, you know, the, the, I think six out of the eight people who were killed um, were Asian. You know, we can speculate um, uh, till the cows come home. Certainly there are racial issues here. Uh, there is a extreme level of sexualization and fetishization towards uh, Asian females in pornography and in sex work. Mm -hmm. uh, this man was alleged to have been a client at some of these at these massage parlors. Uh, it could be that he was a person who found himself really aroused at the idea of you know, sexual interaction with Asian females. And that frightened him because it appears he's also, you know, raised to be a good white evangelical Christian Southern boy who marries girl next door, not an Asian female. And so those desires brought up tremendous fear for him. I, you know, it's funny, the, um, I mean, it's, none of this is funny. I'm sorry. The it's strange um, more than anything. It's strange. The and sad. <laughs> the the Proud Boys. Um, the Proud Boys have a no wank philosophy, and they uh, uh, be, because again they think it makes them a a stronger person, a stronger man to not masturbate. And and I've had wild interactions with Proud Boys. Who I was on the Daily Show a year or two ago where we talked about that and and this kind of weird anti-masturbation thing that they do. Um, but after I was talking about that, I started hearing from uh, men within that group who said, uh, "Look, I'm I'm a skinhead. I am a white supremacist, and yet the thing that turns me on the most." is to think about my wife having sex with a person of color, with a, with a black man, with an Asian man, because it, it triggers this incredible, uh, they couldn't say this, but I can say it as a therapist, because it triggers this intense feeling of arousal at the taboo. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing here. That, that's the paradoxical impact of telling people to be afraid of the things that you're turned on by because that makes it even more exciting. It, it creates a higher, more powerful, exciting, dangerous, stimulating thrill to violate the taboo. Mm -hmm. So what exactly do you think could be done, at least in the somewhat immediate run, to sort of counteract a lot of this myth of you know, sex addiction and to perhaps make our society, you know, safer for sex workers and, you know, those who would be interested in doing sex work? Um, well, first, you know, I want to, um, I want to shout out to a group called Pineapple Support. 
the uh, Pineapple Support is a nonprofit that was created actually to help sex workers get access to uh, affirmative, non-judgmental uh, mental health care. Because unfortunately, there are lots of therapists who have lots of judgment around sex workers, at, you know, who are afraid that all sex workers are being sex trafficked and that they need to be saved. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Pineapple Support was actually created to help sex workers get access to, to, to mental health care that was not going to judge them, not going to shame them. And they also help pay for them to access some of that care. So I, um, pineapple support, it's easily Googleable, um, and I highly recommend them. At a, at a bigger level though, I think we need in our conversations around sexuality, in the media and in law, we need to stop separating sex from the person. We need to recognize that people's sexuality is an expression of the public and private parts of them as a person. We need to stop kind of treating sexuality um, as though it is this homogenous black and white thing that we can deal with separate from who the person is and what their educational background is, what their, uh, what their religious background is. I mean, there's research now coming out regarding pornography that people who watch pornography and think that pornography is a realistic depiction of sex are more likely to experience negative problems related to their pornography use. They're more likely to experience sexual problems in relationships. They're more likely to be sexist um, uh, and have sexist values. They may even be more likely to be at risk for sexual assault. Mm. Why would a person watch pornography and think it's a realistic depiction of sex? Because we have not taught enough of these people that what real sex is and that pornography is entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's that sexy, shiny object thing. We get, we get distracted from dealing with the really complicated social issues that this killing reflect that, you know, the, the, the episode of Harvey Weinstein reflects, you know, Harvey Weinstein went to sex addiction treatment and said he had demons and everybody <laughs> said, Hey dude, that's not why you sexually harassed these, these women. Yeah. There's some deeper issue going on here. <laughs> Sorry. There's, it's not I, sex addiction, quote unquote. And, and, and so we need, we need to be willing to have bigger, deeper conversations about sex and pull away from some of the sensational knee-jerk, black and white, blame sex uh, as the answer. Because until we do that, um, we're going to, sadly, we're going to keep having crises like this. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lay. I know that you're really busy and I'm really grateful that you were able to join me today. Hey, I appreciate you bringing me on. Um, uh, thanks for doing this. Good luck with this show. I, I, th I think these kinds of conversations are how we help the, the legal profession move forward um, uh, with, with, with deeper, richer, more nuanced conversations around sexuality. Thank you.